Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. This is part 6 in a series of messages that I have been preaching to you from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. For the five previous messages in this series entitled, Death in Adam, Life in Christ, we have endeavored to understand the Apostle Paul's thoughts here in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Monumental questions have been asked about the true nature of the doctrines of man and sin. Where did sin come from and exactly how did sin enter the world? And whatever the exact nature of sin, though, and however it was that sin entered the world of humanity, we know with certainty that sin does indeed exist and that it has affected every single area of life, including not simply, of course, the world of human beings, but also the physical world in which we live. As you all know so well, In December of last year, just a little under two months ago now, the world's most devastating waters of of a tsunami, which is a long and dangerous wave caused by earthquakes under the sea, came against several countries of the world. This tsunami has been called by many the most ferocious of its kind in recorded history. And if it was, just think of the fact that it was not even comparable to the universal floodwaters of Noah's day, which wiped out everyone in the entire world, save his own immediate family. This tsunami began out of the middle of the Indian Ocean. I want you to listen to some of the mind-numbing effects of its devastation in a new and excellent booklet in written by John Blanchard in order to attempt to deal biblically with this and other so-called human tragedies. The title of this booklet, which I encourage you to pick up in a couple of weeks as it has been made available, it was sent to me and John Blanchard, who has preached from this very pulpit, has asked me if I would endorse this little booklet for him and I was glad to do so. It's entitled, Where is God When Things Go Wrong? He says this in part in the booklet. At 7.58 a.m. local time on 26 December 2004, tectonic plates several miles under the sea off the northwestern tip of the Indonesian archipelago sprang apart with the force of more than 1,000 atomic bombs, triggering 36 earthquakes displacing trillions of tons of water and realigning a 600-mile section of the Indian Ocean's seabed. Isn't that phenomenal to think of? The biggest earthquake registered 9.0 on the Richter scale and the massive upheaval of water generated a tsunami a long, high sea wave that began to race across the ocean at over 500 miles an hour. Twenty minutes later, 
five colossal waves laid waste the market town of Banda Asi in Sumatra. Thousands perished, less than 100 survived. Elsewhere in Indonesia, the busy town of Lukge was scoured off the face of the earth by a black wall of water twice as high as its palm trees. Only a few dozen of Lugga's 10,000 inhabitants escaped the deluge. The official Indonesian death toll eventually reached well over 220,000. As it roared across the Indian Ocean, the tsunami overwhelmed the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, sweeping 7,000 people to death. In 80 minutes, it had reached the coast of Thailand, where luxury resorts like Phuket, Koh Lanta, Koh Phi and Krabi lay directly in its path. The result was almost beyond description. Moments earlier, holiday makers had been strolling along the beaches while babies slept in their cots and patients in hospital beds. Businessmen, housewives, and others were going about their day's work. Suddenly, with no more than a few moments' warning, a succession of stupendous waves changed their world forever. One survivor said, quote, It was as if someone had pulled out the plug of the ocean. End quote. Hotels, guest houses, homes, and offices collapsed like packs of cards. Motor vehicles were tossed in the nearby trees as if they were matchbox models. Over 5,000 people died. In another 20 minutes, the tsunami hit Sri Lanka, devastating the seaside town of Gali and the nearby coastline. Within minutes, thousands of corpses littered the streets and beaches. Survivors clung desperately to trees and buildings while a raging torrent of water swept past them, carrying a ghastly cargo of debris and drowned animals, along with countless human bodies, some of them gashed open or dismembered by the force of the water. The eight coaches of a crowded train were hurled from the tracks and flung into nearby trees like unwanted toys. There were 1,000 passengers, only a handful survived. Of well over 46,000 deaths in Sri Lanka, at least 15,000 were children. Two hours after the initial earthquake, the wall of water had crossed the Bay of Bengal and ripped into the islands and towns of India's east coast, claiming over 10,000 lives, including an entire church congregation gathered for morning worship. Seven hours, seven hours after the earthquake, gigantic waves swamped Mali, the capital of the Maldives, most of whose 1,190 islands are only a few feet above sea level. Fourteen islands were flattened and nearly 100 people drowned. An hour later and the waves hit the east coast of Africa, killing over 200 people in Somalia, Kenya, and Tanzania. Four weeks on, the tsunami's official death toll was put at over 280,000, but the true figure may never be known. A United Nations spokesman said that in terms of the area affected, this was the greatest natural catastrophe in the world's history. He obviously is not including the universal flood. The Independent, another paper, rightly called it, quote, the wave that shook the world, end quote. 
Some of Asia's islands shifted their positions by several meters, both laterally and vertically. In Great Britain, over 7,500 miles from the epicenter, the earth moved to a measurable extent. And geologists right around the world registered vibrations. It vibrated around the world. It shook the world in other ways too. A Daily Telegraph editorial admitted, quote, Our brains are not designed to compute suffering on such a scale. The swallowing up of whole communities is literally unimaginable. United States President George W. Bush said that the event, quote, brought loss and grief to the world beyond our comprehension, end quote. Now, why do I read this account of this horrific devastation? I do so because it so aptly speaks to the truth that we've been learning about our death in Adam in Romans 5:12. As Paul states it here, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Our world, beloved, is inextricably linked with sin and devastation of all kinds. Death from sin. And as we've been learning in this series of messages from Romans 5, sin itself, as it first entered the world, as it first came upon the world of humanity, it became a reality. But of course you know that it didn't start there. There was sin in the universe before that when Satan himself first sinned. We first hear of him in the Genesis account in the Garden of Eden as the serpent, but he had an actual existence before this description. He was God's beautifully created angel, some saying his original name was Lucifer, although that name is really a mistake, which has come to us from the translators of the King James Version of the Bible. It was actually a mistranslation of the Hebrew text of Scripture coming via the Latin language into our English usage through the KJV. Nevertheless, the serpent, he tricked Eve, the mother of all living, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God commanded her not to eat. The Bible says that she gave of the fruit of that tree to her husband, and he ate and when he did, we can see the first devastating effects of sin upon the world. Even the physical world. Forever since. Including the tremendous devastation we've read about in this cataclysmic tsunami. It's as a result of sin. Sin in our world. Sin entering the world through Adam. And sin devastating our world every single day. We, si we simply can't get around it. We cannot get over it. Sin is real, and it affects every minute element of our physical and spiritual existence. And as I said to you last time, every single person born into this world is infected with this sin from our first parents, sin even sometimes immediately affecting little babies that are born 
into this world with their own immediate physical death. All death, listen carefully, all death, all death is a result of sin. It may, it may not be the direct sin of a person, like these little babies who die in infancy, but all death comes to human beings, either directly or indirectly from sin. It's as a result of sin which entered the world through Adam. Every birth defect, every mangled life, as well as every tornado, every earthquake, every tsunami, every hurricane which comes upon the world of humanity comes to us as a result of sin. And that's why I've emphasized that very point from texts like this in Romans 5.12 and from that other important text which we have looked at, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 21 and 22, where Paul says that by a man, Adam, came death. Succinctly put, by a man, Adam, came death. And verse 22 says, as in Adam, all die. Every human death, even the concept of death itself, has its ultimate origin in the death sentence given to Adam, which God pronounced upon him because of his sin. But now, having labored to declare the truth of our death in Adam, maybe even in some of your own minds, belaboring the point. Did you also realize from your own reading of this paragraph that this is actually not the main point of Romans 5, 12 to 21? You say, boy, if this really isn't the main point of Paul's paragraph here, how is it that you've spent five whole messages on something that isn't the main point? Well, that's a good question. And of course, the obvious answer is this. If we don't understand death in Adam, we will not understand life in Christ. You must understand the gravity of sin and it is the very nature of sin itself to minimize the effects of it, isn't it? It's the very nature of sin itself for us to see ourselves not as sinful as we really are. And it is the nature of sin itself that motivates us not to see the world as sinful as it really is. It is the nature of sin itself to communicate to us that when a tsunami of epic proportion comes upon the world, we say, why God? Why? What are you doing? Are you powerless to prevent such a thing? Where is God when things go wrong? No, we have to understand the depths of sin before we can understand our glorious life in Christ. And Paul's main point is here in this text of Romans 5, 12 to 21, the believer's life in Christ. But even he has taken the model from all of the other Bible writers, and I take my model from all of them, that from, for instance, in Paul's writing here in Romans 1, Chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, he's just talking about sin and the judgment upon it. Verse after verse after verse after verse is talking about the depths of sin, the nature of sin, the dominion of sin, the reign of sin, the consequences of sin, and God's judgment upon it. And even when he talks in Romans 3:21 throughout chapter 4 about faith, it's faith that we believe in God that He will deliver us from this sin. 
And it's only when we come to Romans chapter 5, throughout all of Romans chapter 8, that we can understand our life in Christ. But even there, as soon as we get into chapter 5, and as soon as we begin with verse 12, it's almost as though Paul says, no, I can't let go of it. I can't let go of it. I have to continue to maximize in your mind an emphasis on the doctrine of sin so that you can understand rightly our life in Christ. And so he does that very thing in Romans 5.12 to tell us about sin once again. That truth, my friends, is so desperately needed in our time because we are so quick to say, whether it's a personal devastation in our own life or the life of our loved ones or seeing this devastation in so-called natural disasters that God is somehow unfair to bring it into our lives or into the world itself. And I say to you emphatically on the authority of the Word of God, it is absolutely not unfair. Not unfair, because God is merely judging our world because of sin. Don't blame God for the sinful devastation of the world. He is just in what He does, even if it means providentially shaking the tectonic plates of the very foundation of the physical world we live in in order to give us a wake-up call about sin. He has every right to do that. And he has done it. And this tsunami is precisely that, a wake-up call. A wake-up call of water so devastating that anyone who should have been in the wake of that water so devastatingly acknowledging or else they should the immensity of God's holy and mighty power. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in various psalms, God is mighty. God is immense. The rivers and the seas and the oceans are His. And He he does with them whatever He pleases. It's the Bible's affirmation. And any person who should, if they lived through that earthquake-destroying, tsunami-rendering landscape, a refuse of bodies... They should fall on their knees and they should repent of their sin against this mighty and powerful and awesome God. Now I understand that that's a very somber introduction, but it is nonetheless characteristic of the preaching from this pulpit and the preaching of many faithful pulpits, but tragically is not the faithful preaching of most pulpits. And with that as an introduction this morning and clearly reminding us of Paul's teaching about man's sin, let me move on to Paul's main point now. Only now are we ready to hear the main point of this passage. Look at Romans 5, 12 to 21. We've discussed in detail all of the nuances of verses 12 to the first part of verse 14. And this morning we move on to verse 14b which tells us not of the great contrasts between Adam and Christ, which we'll see from verses 15 to 21, but here, just as he ends this verse, verse 14, he talks about the comparison of Adam and Christ. 
Notice there in verse 14 that Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Referring, of course, to Christ. What does he mean that Adam was a type of Christ? Well, the Greek word is tupas. It originally meant the impression made by striking something, which then, of course, made a form or a pattern or an example on that which it struck. And that's how we come to use it metaphorically. It was a type that is a form, a pattern, an example of something. And interestingly enough, Paul uses that same word, tupas, in 1 Corinthians 10.16 to talk about Old Testament believers being used as a type or a form or an example for New Testament believers, both in terms of their virtues and their vices. And here in verse 14, Paul sets up two universal spheres, two universal heads, two paradigms, as it were, Adam and Christ. And he says they are standing, as it were, as heads of a race of people. The race of all the depraved, sinful men, with Adam standing as the head of that race, and the race of all the righteous, redeemed men, with Christ standing at the head of that race. Two realms of existence. And this is what Paul is speaking of here in the latter part of verse 14 when he says, (coughs) excuse me, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. This coming of Christ was a future reality to Adam, and that's why Paul says of the one who was to come. Obviously, Christ had come by the time he'd written this, but he's talking about it from the perspective of Adam. Between Adam and the coming of Christ, there was a type who was to come. There was a person who was to come who was going to be the fulfillment of the type of Adam. The coming one, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the prefigured head of a new race of people, fulfilling in himself by his death on the cross what the first man, Adam, could not do, and that was to deal with the sin dilemma. Remember how Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn over in your Bibles to that very parallel text in many ways to what he's saying here in Romans 5. 1 Corinthians 15. It's what I've been quoting in these messages that have gone before us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. We'll start there. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says, does Paul, but in fact, in the context of speaking about resurrection and specifically the resurrection of Christ, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Listen to this. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you see this type? Adam and then his anti-type, Christ. Look at verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see these two realms shown before us? These two spheres of life? It is not the spiritual that is first, Christ, but the natural, Adam. He came first. And then the spiritual, Christ. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. We know that from the Genesis account. Adam was was made by God out of the dust of the ground. The second man is from heaven. Christ came from heaven. 
as was the dust, so also those who are of the dust. Do you see that realm of existence? Do you see Adam as seen by Paul, 1 Corinthians 15 here, as the head of the race? He was the first man. He was created out of dust. And we are from him biologically and in so many other ways spiritually. And so we also are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's the image of our physical life, that's the image of our spiritual life, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, Paul is teaching us here that the resurrection of Christ forever set up in Him as the confirmed head of the race of the redeemed and one day resurrected believers. That's what we are if we're in Christ. We're not in Adam anymore. We're in Christ. We're redeemed. And we will one day be resurrected as He was resurrected from the dead. And this is over against this earthly, natural dimension of the first man, Adam, who was a man of dust. And he was destined to perish by going back to the dust. Now go back to Romans 5. Having established that Jesus Christ is the one who comes to fulfill Adam's and his children's helpless estate, that's ourselves, he can now show us these two spheres or realms of existence, and he does so in verses 15 to 21. And I want you, if you're taking notes, you can take your little sermon note sheet of paper and write down there four contrasts, four contrasts that he gives us in verses 15 to 21. Number one, we see the contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. That is taught to us in verses 15 and 16. The contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation, verses 15 and 16. Secondly, we see the contrast between Adam's death and Christ's life. Verse 17, Adam's death and Christ's life. Thirdly, We'll see in verses 18 and 19 the contrast between Adam's condemnation and Christ's justification. Adam's condemnation and Christ's justification. And then fourthly and lastly from this paragraph of Paul's pen, we'll see in verses 20 and 21 the contrast between Moses' law and Christ's grace. The contrast between Moses' law and Christ's grace. Now we're going to look this morning only at the first one. In the first of these four. And then we'll finish up the others as the end of our series next week, Lord willing. I want us to focus on verses 15 and 16 and the contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. We could characterize it like this. Even though we fully acknowledge the sin that has come into the world through one man, Adam, that's what Romans 5.12 says, and even though we acknowledge that death spread to all men because all men sin, we acknowledge that, and even when we equally and completely concur that this death spread to all men because all sinned, we concur all of that, we agree with all of that, that's what the Word of God says, that's what it has taught us, we must affirm it, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, Even though we agree with all of that, we see in verse 15, we also, however, joyfully and thankfully affirm that Jesus Christ, our Messiah, 
has come to do what Adam and ourselves could not do, and that was to give us the only available answer to sin. Look at verse 15. But, that signals the contrast, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for, that's a key word, for, here's the explanation of this first contrast, for if many, which means here all, If many died through one man's trespass, and all did, much more, much more have the grace of God, God's undeserved gift, and the free gift, the gift of salvation, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Which doesn't mean all here. Now you have that? Let me say it again. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For, here's the explanation, if many, not not just a few, but if all, that's the use of many here, if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam's, much more have the grace of God, that's God's undeserved gift, and the free gift, the gift of salvation, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, not all, but for those in His realm, for those in His sphere, for those who are under the headship of Christ. And there you see this great contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. It's marvelous. It's stupendous. It's tremendous. Paul says the free gift, the gracious act of God, whereby in Jesus Christ He's given an abounding gift, is so totally and so substantively different from Adam's death-deserving sinful choice. Do you see that contrast? Adam plunged the whole human race into sin, and we have not one answer for that dilemma. Not one. It's not Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's not tarot cards. It's not psychic readers. It's not... Heroes, it's not any of those who can say, by the power of my mind I can heal myself. It's not by going down to some hot springs and believe that you can be rejuvenated. It's not believing anything other than what the Word of God says right here, and it is Jesus Christ and the realm, the existence that He provides for those who follow Him. It's wholly different. It's like it's from a different realm, and that's because it is. It's from a different realm. Didn't he say about Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15? It's not like the earthy Adam. He's so different. He comes not from the natural realm, but from a supernatural one, heaven. And he has become a man. And by virtue of his death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead, he's now qualified to dispense God the Father's free grace of undeserved favor to otherwise death-deserving sinners. What a message! What a message of hope! Do you realize that if someone was standing there and a wall of water twice the size of the palm trees that they were looking at just a few moments earlier, 
that if that wall of water were to come crashing down on them and they were of the realm of Christ and not the realm of Adam, they would have been immediately upon their their death transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son because they are in Jesus Christ. For them, that experience would have simply been a novel one. Death for sure. Physical separation of the soul from the body for a time, yes. But immediate access to the throne room of God by virtue of Christ's work on the cross for them. What a message. And that's the only message, beloved. That's the only message. For those who were equally standing there who did not know Christ, and that tsunami of water came crashing down upon them, and they didn't know Christ, while that body was strewn along that seashore, they were immediately judged on the basis of their rejection of Jesus Christ, remaining forever in the realm of Adam, remaining forever in the realm of the one who plunged all of us into sin. I want you to notice Paul's very language here. Look back at verse 15. If that, death deserving trespass, that's what he means. If that, then much more this, abounding grace, as seen in a free gift. That's the point of the verse. If that... What's that? The trespassing sin. If that, much more this. What's the this? Abounding grace. Abounding grace. And it's seen as a free gift. Notice verse 17. If that, what's the that? Death reigning sin. Then, much more this. Righteousness reigning life. See the contrast? If, if you're in Adam, it's that. A death-deserving relationship of punishment. But if you're in Christ, righteousness reigning, eternal life reigning. Look at verse 20. If that, law-giving, producing, increasing sinfulness, then what about this? Grace engendering righteousness which increases all the more. Oh, what God-honoring contrasts. What Christ-exalting contrasts. And what pride-crushing results for sinful men. That's the root issue, isn't it? Someone who rejects this God-honoring offer of the free gift of eternal life. Someone who spurns Jesus Christ and says no to the Christ-exalting contrast that Paul gives here is saying, no, I can do it on my own. And Paul says, no, I write it this way so that all pride could be crushed. See what he's really doing here? He's showing us our sin and he's exalting God's grace. And as you sit there and listen to the teaching of the Word of God, do you acknowledge your sinful life in Adam? Is that your acknowledgement this morning? Do you confess that you are dead in Adam? Do you echo Paul's words that you, when you sinned in Adam, you deserved the holy and righteous sentence of not just physical, 
of not just spiritual, but eternal death. It's a, it's a triple dilemma. I not only died in Adam as a result of my sin, my sin in him, with the physical part of my life which will come to an end, and not only with the spiritual part of my life where I am dead spiritually even as I walk if I'm in Adam, but also an eternal death that awaits me because of my rejection of Jesus Christ, my rejection of His headship over that realm of existence that says, pride shall not enter here. You see the contrast? Well, if you do, you have been properly prepared to receive the ultimate contrast between sinful death and its solution, God's free, God's free gift of undeserved grace. Just think about it. Think about it when you were a young person. You young people, you think about this. When you were there, huddled around with your family at that time in which gifts are dispensed, and you knew, even as a young person, that when you were being lavished upon with gift after gift after gift by your parents or loved ones, and you knew that just that morning you had been evil to your brother or sister, that you had done them wrong, that you knew that evil existed in your own heart, and that you were guilty of such an act that very morning, and yet... Your parents were dispensing upon you grace upon grace upon grace as a free gift. Just enjoy, my son. Just enjoy, my daughter. Have fun. Go after it. Have a great time. So God offers to us the free gift of eternal life. An escape hatch out of Physical death with judgment to follow. And escape from a spiritual death existence as a human being. Dead even while you live. And the offer is extended to you. I'm extending you the offer right now. I'm extending to every single person who sits within the hearing of my voice the offer, the gracious, free gift offer of Jesus Christ to you. Are you desirous of being in that sphere, that realm of existence? That's what Christ offers. And He offers it to you not like that example that I gave around Christmas time that, that's trivial, that doesn't even compare to the gifts that we receive at the gracious hand of the death of Jesus Christ for us. It doesn't even compare. Are you, beloved people, sensing in your own heart right now that God offers you the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ and you say, oh yes, and I've already received it? How do you live in light of it then? What's your life like in light of it? You don't want to go back to that old realm. You can't. So, so what are you doing under the headship of Christ right now in the realm in which you're living? How serious about sin do you live your life? Are you sensitive to your sin? Do you love righteousness and hate sin? 
Do you say to yourself regularly as you wake up and see the dew out on the ground every morning because Lamentations 3.23 says that His, His faithfulness is new every morning just like that dew. Do you resolve each morning? I want to live different than I did the day before. I want to see my sin in a new way. I want to be sensitive to it. I want to grow repugnant of it. I want to see God work in my life to such a degree that I don't even look like the person who once dwelt in the sphere of Adam. I want people to say, just like in the waters of baptism, that's not someone for whom I recognize. I remember years ago, to use another trivial example, when Bobby Jones, a great golfer, who of course designed and headed up for many years the Masters Golf Tournament. He was quite old, but he was seeing a young golfer play golf. And he saw this young man hit ball after ball after ball, and he watched such a sweet swing and such a straight drive, such an incredible putter, such a tremendous short game. And he looked at this young man by the name of Jack Nicholas, and he said this, he plays a game of golf for which I am unfamiliar. An ultimate kind of compliment coming from the great Bobby Jones. Do you realize that you want to live in your embattlement against sin in just the same way so that people might say around you, he's dealing with his sin to such a degree, she's dealing with her sin to such a degree It is a person who I thought I knew and for which now when they're dealing with their sin, I do not recognize. Why? Because I'm living under my head. I'm responding to the headship of Jesus Christ. He's in charge. He's my boss. He's the master. He is Lord. I live under a new realm. I don't live like that anymore. I don't act like that anymore. That's not my life. You say perfectly no. It's not the perfection of your life, but it ought to be the direction of it. Absolutely. And when you see that realm of Adam, when you see that lived out in the world, when you see it in your own life, you say, that's not the realm in which I want to live. That's not the realm for which I want to serve my Christ, the one I profess to know and love and believe in and serve. This contrast, this first contrast of Paul speaks... I guess we could say, of the highest contrast of degree. The highest contrast of degree. That is to say, to the degree that physical, spiritual, eternal death is as a result of Adam's trespass, so also is the degree to which God has provided a remedy. It's that contrastative. It's His matchless grace of eternal deliverance given to the Romans as He's writing to them as a free gift and given to any of us as well who only otherwise deserve death. What a contrast. I hold out for you the offer of life, not death. How many people standing just moments before their impending doom who would have heard the preaching of my own voice and said, No! Don't talk to me about that. I don't believe that. I have another God whom I'm serving. Don't tell me about Jesus Christ. 
and then the doom was instant. Can't have a greater degree than this. Sin is what it is, and grace, oh, it is what it is. Abounding grace. Isn't that what he says in verse 15? Abounding The one man, Jesus Christ, has an abounding grace. And it's a free gift. Just think of the difference. Just think of the difference. And look what he says in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. That's Adam. For the judgment following one trespass, that's his first sin, brought condemnation, but... Here's the contrast again. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Oh, don't miss that phrase, many trespasses. It's His one sin that catapulted us all in a general condemnation. But it's also the grace, the free gift of grace following many trespasses. You say, how many? As many as have been committed by every person in the entire world from the time of Adam until now for everyone who would ever believe. That's how many sins. You say, that's a lot of sins. And you'd be right. Every single person who would ever believe, who would ever place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has the opportunity because of the free gift that's offered to them to see that the one man's trespass, Adam, could be answered in their many trespasses against God. But by believing in Jesus Christ, you receive justification. Justification declared not guilty. Can you imagine the joy of heaven when someone, maybe, maybe that congregation that I read, who were worshiping God, maybe they were worshiping the true God, maybe they were worshiping Jesus Christ Himself, maybe they were worshiping Him by singing hymns, maybe it was the time of the sermon, maybe it was the time of their giving of their offering to the Lord, maybe it was at the time that they were praying as a congregation, and of those who were believing in Jesus Christ, even though they had many trespasses against Him, once they placed their faith in Christ and their sins were forgiven, when that wall of water wiped them all away, way, their souls were immediately transported and they were in worship that they had never experienced. Oh, that God would do that for us today, that He would transport us from this life of sin into the life of bliss and into the face of Jesus Christ. There are only two heads. Adam and Christ. Which one are you serving? If you're not a Christian, still living in your own life with all your sins, the head of your race is Adam. And what he's brought you and what you've brought yourself by your own sin is death and condemnation. But if the head of your race is Jesus Christ, that means by His grace based solely on the work that He did on the cross, you've received deliverance from death by being justified, declared not guilty by God for your sin in Adam and for your own personal sins. Do you realize 
that when that wall of water, which was higher than the trees themselves, swept through all those countries, if a person who died was in Adam, they were immediately judged by God and condemned by their sin. Oh, but if another person who died was in Christ, they were immediately ushered into God's presence because they'd already been declared not guilty for their sins and that laid on Christ. He took the punishment. He took the abuse. He took the scorn. He took the death that you and I deserved and He died for us. I want you to bow together with me. As we close this morning, I ask you, are you ready for God's spiritual tsunami? Don't answer too quickly. Are you ready for God's spiritual tsunami? For whatever befalls you in this life, whether it be a literal tsunami or not, are you ready to withstand God's judgment of your sin? I plead with you. I plead with you. Don't presume that if you are counting on Adam as your corporate head, believing somehow that your own works will deliver you, they won't. They and you will perish in the cataclysmic destruction of God's tsunami of condemnation. Oh, please receive the free gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ who declares us not guilty and delivers us from certain death. Even as the waves of destruction are upon us. Oh God, thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for this world-splitting difference between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. May we be saved in Christ so that we may be delivered from the wrath to come. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.